From NASA sending astronauts to the moon to billionaires launching themselves into space, there's something about the cosmos that inspires people to attempt the impossible. None of this would be possible if it weren't for a group of engineers who risked it all for the sake of blowing stuff up. From LAS Studios, listen to LA Made, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let me just let me just tell the dog to be quiet. Hey, on a hilly out, I guess the Sorry, my dogs only speak Finnish. <laughs> my mother is Finnish and my father is English. So I've always had a connection to Finland for my for my whole life. And when I saw that there was a opportunity to get a job in a data center in a country that I love, in a culture that I wanted to be part of, it, I just jumped at it. So it sort of it was a bit of a dream come true really to be working in an industry I love and in a country that I I have a great relationship with. This is where the internet lives. A show about the unseen world of data centers. I'm Stephanie Wong and I'm your guide to the people and places that make up the internet. This season, we're exploring how data centers change the world around them in surprising and transformative ways. Miko Green is an operations manager at Google's data center in Hamina, Finland. He was born in England and spent much of his life in the UK. But during the summer months, when his family would vacation in Finland, his mother kept the culture in the house, speaking to Miko and his siblings in her native language. My mum spoke to us in Finnish sometimes when we were at home. It was a great secret language because very, well, very, very few people in the UK could actually understand what we're saying. So... It was a brilliant language for telling a child off in a public situation. I must admit, I wasn't always the most well-behaved child, so I think it was actually quite a useful skill to be able to understand a different language. And it meant not everybody had to be part of that uh, reckoning when it came. In 2012, when Miko applied to work at Google's new data center in Hamina, he was excited about the prospect of moving back to the country where his mother's family still lives. And Hamina was the quintessential Finnish town. Small, industrial, water everywhere. On a map, it's an unremarkable dot 90 miles east of Helsinki on Finland's southeastern coast. But it has a fascinating history. Hamina is an interesting city. There's not many cities that are built on the old town part of Hamina. It's built on a circular street plan. So if you have a drone and you hover up at a few uh, 500 meters, you'd actually see the, the streets radiating off of a central town. The town hall building is in the middle and then circular streets radiating off around that. It was actually built as a military town. So one of the reasons for that design, because it actually had ramparts and, and defensive uh, sort of construction around the town, because it was actually a town that was fought over quite often between uh, different parties with the Swedish and the Russians before Finland gained independence even. About 20,000 people live in Hamina. In 2019, they installed the largest Finnish flag in all of the Nordics. It's almost the size of a basketball court. And on a windy day, you can see it from anywhere in town. It's not a buzzing metropolis, but it's a. I think the Hamina use their own tagline. It's a uh, uh, which is a world-class small city. 
Historically, this tiny corner of Finland was known for papermaking. It's been a cornerstone of the economy since the late 1800s. The country has long been a top producer of the world's paper. By the early 2000s, the forest industry, which includes wood products, pulp, and paper, employed 70,000 people. In 1965, when the pulp and paper industry was booming, Stora Enzo, the largest paper producer in all of Europe, built the Suma paper mill in town. Yeah, the paper mill was, parts of it were built from like the 1950s onwards, and some of it was built in the 70s and 80s. So we got a, a varying sort of styles of architecture there. It's originally designed by Alvar Aalto, which is one of the most famous Finnish architects. For four decades, the paper mill was one of the largest employers in the area. And when the mill was really humming, everyone knew it. There's a certain smell you get from a paper mill when it's operational. It's the smell, I think, of when they're, when they're uh, processing the cellulose from the wood and, and stuff like that. And the locals say in Kotkan Hamina before, that was the smell of money. It was, uh, you, could, you could tell that people were making money because you could tell from the smell of the, of the operation. The paper industry has always played a huge role here, yeah, and it's, it was a generational industry. So you talk to a lot of people here, their grandfathers were in the paper industry, then their fathers, and then maybe even they worked in the industry themselves. So we tended to see whole families working in that industry. But in the mid-2000s, the paper industry started a downward slide. The digital economy was taking off, and paper exports were falling. Stora Enzo started closing mills all across Finland. And in 2008, it closed the Hamina Mill. The mill had barely been shuttered for a year when Google bought the building to turn it into a data center. For a town whose identity was built around the paper industry, there was some skepticism. When I arrived in 2012, there was a lot of questions because we'd only been operating the data center for about a year. And it was a lot of questions about who are you? Why are you here? How long are you going to be here? When's the paper mill going to reopen? And when are you strange people going to leave? To many locals, Hamina might have seemed like a strange place to put a hyperscale data center. But it turns out that a paper community had all the right elements for running a warehouse full of computers. Well, there's the element of you need a site, so you need enough physical space to be able to build. We had a large site with uh, hundreds hundreds of acres of uh, available land. Uh, there was cooling water we were right next to the sea, so we could use the seawater for cooling. That's an incredibly important uh, positive part of why we chose where we were going to uh, site the site. The mill had been built right on the water, overlooking the Gulf of Finland. That proximity to water meant seawater could be used to cool the steam generator that ran the old mill. And it meant Google could use the same infrastructure to pump Baltic seawater through the data center to cool the server floor. But that wasn't all. They had large incoming power supplies. Because, again, a paper industry is a very power-heavy industry. Data centers require a lot of power to be able to run the servers in there. And when you look at the people, a lot of people consider data centers to be very technical when you have to have people in there who are running around fixing, fixing the IT side of things. Absolutely. But that's not the majority of the people. The vast majority of the people in the data center are actually there to do other things, like make sure the power is available, make sure there's cooling available, make sure that the data center is secure, make sure that people are fed, make sure that all of the other services around the data center keep on running. So there's a lot of people already in the local area who understood a lot of those things because they already understood power, they understood cooling, they understood a lot of those areas that a data center needs. 
So there was a readily available, talented, skilled workforce in the local area. How consequential were the economic shifts that impacted the people who had worked for generations in the paper industry? It would be like uh, what's happened in places like Detroit, where where manu- car manufacturing in the audio industry has has shrunk or or changed the way it uh, operates. So, for many areas in Finland, the, the paper industry and its uh, resizing or its uh, changing and the way it's changed the operations has had a similar impact. Since the start of the renovation in 2009, Google has invested 1.2 billion euros into the data center and surrounding infrastructure, while employing thousands of people. It's a big deal, not just for Hamina, but for Finland as a whole. It's been almost a decade and a half since Google bought the paper mill and then built a data center there. So what has been the economic impact? There's been multiple um economic impacts there's a lot of direct employment now we're not talking about small amounts of money and a lot of that money works its way back into the local economy and to the overall economy of Finland because of the people who work here and the companies that work here with us so it does have a massive effect Along with the economic impact, the Hamina data center is also having a positive environmental impact. And that's because Finland gets nearly 85% of its electricity from non-fossil energy. And Google is buying renewable energy directly from new wind farms built in the country. Finland has a very good and very stable energy grid, and which has a very good mix of renewable and nuclear energy and other types of and hydroelectric etc into in the grid as well so that that definitely helps when you're looking to uh, attract things like data center operations miko mentioned the use of seawater earlier seawater cooling eliminates the need for potable water and drastically cuts energy consumption at the site Finally, the heat from the servers is used to warm the campus, and Google is also exploring how to expand a district heating system for the broader community. And now we're at the next frontier here now as well. A lot of people are looking at how, okay, we produce the IT side of things, but we also produce heat. So how can we use that heat to its best advantage? How can we use that heat for the advantage of the of the people in the local area and the people around where the data centers are sited? The transformation of the paper mill into a hyperscale data center is a microcosm of Finland's broader economic shift toward tech, which is now a top industry in the country. And the data center's focus on sustainability is an example of how tech companies can help Finland reach its goal of becoming carbon neutral by 2035. Data centers are going to have to be sustainable. Obviously, uh, we've made a lot of commitments as a company around sustainability, around the energy that we uh, we use and making sure that that's uh, carbon neutral. But also for the long term, we want to be a good uh, neighbor to the communities that we live in. So obviously, the more we can do around sustainability and reuse of uh, heat, etc., that makes us a much better uh, neighbor to our to our local community. After 10 years of operation, the initial suspicion locals felt about Google's data center moving into Hamina has turned to enthusiasm. Now, everybody is always asking, so when are you going to build the next building? When are you going to, when are you going to expand again? They're very proud of having Google in their town and having us as one of the major employers now in the, in the whole region. As the economy shifts and diversifies, 
What do you think the future of Harmony looks like? If you'd have asked me 10 years ago when I was talking to people, they didn't have a great feeling of a great feeling about what the future of Harmony was going to be. They'd come, there'd only been a few years since uh, the paper mill had shut down. We'd been here for a little while, but nobody could understand the scale that we'd, we would get to in the future. There wasn't a great positive outlook necessarily. That's changed a lot. I think uh, now people are much more positive. They can see that there's a lot more opportunities and there's a lot more positivity around the town. Uh, we're also seeing a decline in the number of people leaving the area because in a lot of the areas, especially a post-industrial type areas, you see quite a lot of people leaving. They'll go towards the major metropolitan areas and you'll see quite a lot of people leaving. It's not got to the stage yet when the area is necessarily growing in numbers hugely, but there are opportunities. People don't have to leave now to be able to find a good, decent place to work and to be able to bring up their families. They can still stay here. It's a huge transformation and it's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing to think about. Miko Green is a data center operations manager at Google's data center in Hamina, Finland. If you want to learn more about building your career at a data center or Google's investments in communities like Hamina, click through the link in the show notes. Where the Internet Lives is produced by Postscript Media in collaboration with Google. Our theme music was written by Echo Finch. Additional music came from Epidemic Sounds, Blue Dot Sessions, and Echo Finch. You can subscribe to the show on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you access your shows. And please give us a rating if you like the series. I'm Stephanie Wong. Thank you for listening. I've been wondering something lately. Why does it seem like once you become a billionaire, when you're one of those disruptor CEO mavericks, the only thing left to do to test your genius is to build yourself a rocket ship? And I speak for all of us here at SpaceX when I say we could not be more excited to finally be sending humans to the International Space Station. There's Elon Musk. I cannot emphasize this enough. We must make life sustainably multiplanetary. There's Jeff Bezos, who stepped down as CEO of Amazon to focus on Blue Origin, his rocket company, and sent William Shatner to the edge of space, not to mention Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. So what is it with these guys? Why the middle-aged pivot to rocketry? I think there's something about outer space, the cosmos, that inspires people to attempt the impossible. But here's what most people don't know. None of this would have happened. No billionaires launching themselves into the wild blue yonder. No moon landing either. If it weren't for a group of men in Pasadena, California, back in the 1930s. They risked it all for the sake of blowing shit up and changing the world. Specialization complete. Affirmative. They would come to be known as the Suicide Squad. Allow me to introduce them. Chen Chu Shen, the mathematician. And he would come to the classroom. He would just, there's a students obviously ask questions. And Chen would say, I would suggest you to drop off my class. That's it, simple. Frank Molina, the mastermind. I would say it was kind of his dream to establish unmanned exploration of space. 
And lastly, Jack Parsons, the one about whom I have reservations. Parsons was perhaps the most, <laughs> I would say, unusual one. Jack always wanted to set off rockets and explosions. He wanted to be out there in the field and making things happen. That's the crew. They were the perfect storm. In the 1930s, if you said you wanted to work on rockets, colleagues would ostracize you, financiers would laugh in your face, and everyone would assume you were going to accidentally blow yourself up, which was a fair assumption. Frequent explosions at Caltech are actually how this team earned its name, the Suicide Squad. But far from being a joke, the squad's achievements led to the founding of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California, which has landed rovers on Mars. So let me say this. If you think Branson and Musk have earned their reputation as eccentric wild cards, just wait till you hear the Suicide Squad story. There will be satanic ceremonies and some practices known as sex magic. Which is using sexual intercourse and, and orgasm in rituals to harness energy towards a specific goal. There will also be historical figures who get screwed over and unfairly forgotten. Women have been a part of every major milestone and every mundane task in the history of aerospace, and their stories are not often told or remembered. There will be a corrosive and widespread communist scare. The then director of JPL, Louis Dunn, walked into an FBI office and said, I think this is spying at JPL. And ultimately, there will be a suspicious death. There were actually two explosions, one right after another. It shook the city with shockwaves. Test telephone switch to arm, arm light on. Trusty command to internal. I'm M.G. Lord. Discover the mad origins of aerospace. Two, one, Blood, Sweat, and Rockets, the first season of L.A. Made, a new podcast coming soon from L.A.'s studios. Thank you.